Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Greetings, Upper Room. My name is BJ Krishnan. I'm the lead pastor here. It's just so good to be with you today. Some of you may remember 1994 in Rwanda, an African country, uh, one of the worst uh, greatest tragedies, greatest, one of the greatest genocides the world has ever known. In a span of about 100 days, or just less than 100 days, 800,000 Rwandans were killed by other Rwandans. And it was a war and a battle kind of between two tribes in Rwanda, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And a lot of people in the aftermath of that were analyzing why the conflict happened. It was a group of people who had lived together for hundreds of years. And there was, of course, the, um, you know, the comments and the suggestions about tribalism, racism, ethnic tensions, all of which were certainly a part of the conflict. But um, a priest in the Catholic Church and an author and a theologian, Emmanuel uh, Cotangole, wrote uh, kind of an extensive piece after studying this whole thing. And he made a really profound observation about the root of that conflict. He said, actually, the Hutus and the Tutsis had existed as tribes, different tribes, in Rwanda for many, many years. And uh, prior to the end of the 19th century, before European colonials came in to Rwanda, uh, they existed peacefully. And they shared a common language. They shared social structures. They shared religious faith. There was intermarriage between the tribes. And so even though the tribal identities were there, it actually wasn't really what made them, um, uh, you know, formed who they were, their sense of being Rwandan. They said after when the, when the colonials came in, they noticed, the, the European colonials noticed that even though the Tutsis made up a very small percentage of the population, 15%, that they tended to hold more of the positions of power and the titles of authority. And again, this had been going on for many years without any sort of conflict, but as colonials came in, they drew the conclusion, ah, these people with the power and the uh, titles and the authority, well, this tribe, they must be naturally more superior and just more natural-born leaders. And so they began to actually accentuate the differences to continue to propagate uh, the Tutsi tribes having more positions of power and leadership and authority. And in fact, after they did a bunch of social reforms, they, they conducted a census and they gave everybody, as a result of the census, they made them declare their ethnic identity. They were Hutu, Tutsi, and then there was another smaller tribe. And so that actually became a part of the their identity. And they continued to propagate the differences between the two tribes. And over time, tensions began to build as the Hutus noticed that saying, hey, we're the majority, but the minority has power and they have all these titles and they have all this opportunity. This isn't right. And it began tensions back and forth, with it, which eventually just resulted in this tragedy and the genocide. Now, we pray to God that something like that never happens again. But I think if we were to contemplate some of the things that are beneath actually um, the realities of our everyday life, there are a lot of similarities. And in fact, specifically, if you think about your workplace, was, if we want to think about the occupational hazards of work, they are actually the same things that led to such an incredible amount of conflict in Rwanda. Titles, power, hierarchy, social order. 
I would suggest to you that actually in our workplace, for many of us, we would say, yeah, this is the reality. These are occupational hazards. And these things in particular are actually being accentuated and called out and constantly sought after in an employment context. And they actually work to create tension and friction in work relationships. In some case, even create um, you know, uh, things that are splitting apart in workplaces where you have toxic cultures or people leaving or getting fired or all this because of titles, power, hierarchy, and the social order. Maybe even as you come in here today, you would describe your workplace as sort of something that's driven and governed by this. And for you, that actually makes you feel not safe. That there's a sense of competition always of trying to get uh, better and who's got a promotion, and who's got this title, and who's got this pay grade, and, and, and achieve this thing. And it actually creates tension. You don't enjoy the dynamic that it introduces in your workplace. Perhaps many of us would say, yeah, we feel like our lives that we've been suffering because of either di people directly or indirectly abusing the power or the hierarchy or the titles that they have. Maybe some of us actually deal with insecurity and shame about what we do. We hate conversations about, and we hate meeting new people because we're afraid they're going to ask us, oh, what do you do? Because it actually brings a sense of shame because we regard ourselves as having kind of a lower position. We're further down the quote, the totem pole or whatever that is in the social order, the work order of life. And so we hate that and, and it actually creates a feelings of insecurity and shame. Maybe some of you are people who lead in your workplace uh, and some kind of whether you're, whether you're teaching or you're a manager or you're some kind of leadership and you're responsible not only for outcomes and tasks but people and you struggle with the fact that sometimes people feel disengaged with what they're doing or maybe there's low morale or low loyalty or just poor work ethic and you feel the pressure of having to meet outcomes and try to get things done and yet trying to motivate or deal with people who are um, not happy or not wanting to work or um, refusing to be led by you. And all of this this is just kind of creating the dynamics and the, the frustration in our workplace. And, and really, the result is it makes what we do, many of us for 40, 50, 60, or more hours a week, so difficult, such a struggle. And the strain, not just in the work, but in the relationships in our workplace, is a load we carry. It's something that as we think about, we sort of go, oh, yeah, that's why I need a new job. Or you know what I need is a new boss, or I need a new role, or I need uh, a new salary. I need something to change. Maybe I got to leave where I am, or something's got to change here. And this is what we're after, you know, because it's, otherwise it's just the same old every week, every Monday, every Saturday, every shift, every you know class. It's the same, the same old grind. And I need something new. We happen to be in a series right now that we are calling New Life, and the premise for us have just sort of. Uh, finishing celebrating Easter is saying that because of the resurrection of Jesus, the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, not only was Jesus himself uh, being made new through his story, but he was declaring, actually, I'm making everything new. And our premise for this series is that the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the fact that this has happened in history, not only is something that happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago, but his new life is breaking in on us and we are able to have new life. And that the greatest evidence of this new life can be seen in our relationships. And over the next few weeks, we're exploring a whole bunch of spheres of the, the way that Jesus actually changed and affects our relationships. One of the things you'll notice in the letters that are written after the biographies of Jesus 
Jesus in the New Testament, one of which we're going to look at today. The letters kind of take time to explore the grand theological ideas of the life of Jesus and what it means that he has lived and died and been raised to life. And then it gets really practical often at the very end of the letters. Okay, well, what does this mean for you if you're single? What does this mean for you if you're married? What does this mean for you if, if in your relationship with your parents? What does this mean for you in your relationship with your children? And what does this mean for you in your workplace? And the promise and the offer of new life to us that, that the scriptures say has already begun is that even in our workplace and in our work relationships, things can be made new. And so uh, the letter we're looking at today actually explores this uh, in detail, and it's about the implications of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to this church, is saying, hey, what you need most in your workplace is not a new job or a new boss or a new salary or a new role or a new environment or a new career, but actually a new title. And here's what he says. Ephesians 5.21 and then 6.5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, you might at first thinking, wait, I thought we were talking about work. There's two dirty words. They're both S words in here that we gotta, gotta talk about right off the top before we get into this. Otherwise, we're gonna be tripped up. And, and those words are submit and slaves. So let me just talk about slaves. When we read this word slaves, like everything in us naturally goes, oh no, that's wrong. Slavery is wrong. And this is like slaves obey your masters. And isn't this the kind of stuff that the church used to use as verses to justify slavery? And yes, that's true. And so here's what we need to address about this. Um, Paul is actually talking about an institution that was holding up really the entire Greco-Roman world. They estimate about one in three people in the Greco-Roman world at that time were slaves. And so in a sense, and that the, actually the entire workforce um, operated um, out of slavery. And so you may have had some who were like domestic slaves who worked out of the house, who worked for households that people hired. Um, you would have had uh, also gangs of slaves that worked in mines or worked in fields. Um, and just a few comments about this. Generally speaking, um, the slaves were treated well, certainly in households. In fact, um, some of them had, they had the opportunity, if they made enough money, they could buy their way out. Um, they ended up sometimes in slavery because they owed something they couldn't pay, and so they were able to actually buy their way out. Sometimes masters in their will would actually free the slaves as part of their will, as part of the estate, because um, slaves had almost become part of the family. There was also practices in, in Roman culture where a slave could be adopted in as a child, and so they would change their status from being slaves to being children. And so there was all of that that was, um, we, we'd call more indentured servanthood. And certainly there was chattel slavery, and there was a lot of issues with that too, so not all slaves were, were doing well, and it was not safe for all of them, but certainly there was another class of, they were the working class, and they were the people who supported, in a sense, the Greco-Roman culture. Now, a lot of people have wondered, hey, why didn't Jesus or the Apostle Paul sort of say, we should get rid of slavery? And I think just a couple of brief comments on that. I think, first of all, we can say safely that the writings and the life of, of Jesus and the apostles after him because of Jesus laid the groundwork, which eventually led to the abolition movement. And whether it was William Wilberforce uh, in the North Atlantic slave trade, uh, the 18th and 19th centuries, or um, uh, the Dr. Martin Luther King and some of the people that promoted abolition and got rid of slavery in the Deep South, all of that was actually because of their conviction of who Jesus was, what he has said, and what the apostles have said. So I think we can say that this, the equality of all human beings, the inherent value of all human beings, laid the groundwork for the abolition of slavery. I think the other thing we can recognize is that 
the way the apostles taught and what Jesus said was trying to actually prevent a bloody revolution. Jesus himself actually taught that the way to change power dynamics is actually to lay your life down and not shed other people's blood in a revolt, but actually give up your own life and shed your own blood to bring peace. And reform and revolution comes that way, not through revolt. And so we, they were actually encouraging the slave community. That's why a lot of the teachings you'll read is Paul and the apostles were trying to say, no, don't overthrow, don't lead to revolt, don't lead to bloodshed. That's not the way of Jesus. And so I think we can sort of uh, understand that that's, that was a part of, of um, what was going on. And then actually even in other letters, the Apostle Paul even mentions uh, in lists of sins, he mentions slave traders. And he says, people who are slave traders will not enter the kingdom of God. In other words, so there was clearly a kind of slavery and a kind of chattel slavery that uh, the New Testament completely uh, disagreed with. And so you have all of those dynamics in play. And so really what we can say here in this passage is Paul is talking about work in general. So we can kind of find ourselves within this. But maybe the even dirtier S word when it comes to work is this word submit. And he says at the beginning, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the word submit here in the Greek actually has a connotation of, um, of rank. In other words, submission, to submit to someone was to place yourself below their rank or to rank yourself, in a sense, below them. It was this idea of submitting to someone or submitting to them in order to serve them as someone who has a higher rank or a higher level of importance than you. Now, even as I say that, I know everything in us is like, oh, that's what leads to slavery. That's what leads to exploitation. That's what leads to abuse. And that is true. And so we can't miss what Paul is saying here in this verse. He uses the word submit. He says, you know, actually power down, put your rank in a sense below someone else. And you, and you actually serve them as if they are higher or submitting to them. But then he says this, submit to one another which is actually taking this whole idea of submission turning on its head. He's actually saying, not only are you supposed to look for how you can serve others and, 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 and people of a higher rank, or they say, saying to yourself, I'm lower than them, I'm going to serve them, and I'm going to be subject to them, they are doing the same to you. He says, he actually upends this whole thing. He says, this isn't just about you submitting to someone else, it's actually about them submitting to you. And this is actually the first line in a whole section of teaching that relates to marriage, that relates to parents and children, and that relates to work. And he says, look, here at the beginning, each of you in your relationships and in your workplace should be thinking and submitting to the people you work with, and they should be submitting to you. He's talking about this mutual kind of submission that actually turns the whole power dynamics and title and hierarchy on its head. And what is he talking about? What does this even mean? It's kind of confusing what it means to submit to. It's like standing in front of a door going, you go first. No, you go first. No, no, after you, and after you. He's saying, yeah, it's like that. It's actually putting another person ahead of yourself. And the key is this, out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. He says, because of Jesus, because of who Jesus is, because of how Jesus lived, because of how Jesus loved, because of how he died and rose from the dead, out of that relationship with him, now you think differently about everybody you work with. You are seeing the world differently. Everyone actually is now being thought of when you think about your workplace because of what Jesus has done, we now submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you think, okay, what does this mean? Out of reverence for Christ, he says, because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, now that changes how you see everybody you work with. And then he goes on to explain. Look what he says. Slaves, obey your masters not only to win their favor 
when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people. You may have an old job, but you have a new title. Maybe the same old pile of work, same old salary, same old project list, same old group of people. But Paul says, hey, because of Jesus, you now have a new title. And the new title is Slaves of Christ. He says, this is how everyone who works should see themselves. This is who you are now working for. Yes, you are a slave that is meant to submit, but you are a slave ultimately to Christ. Which means you don't actually work for a company, the government, a school board, a certain group of people, a guild. You don't actually work for a CEO or a principal or a teacher or a manager or a shift supervisor. That's not who your boss is. You are slaves of Christ. You have a new title. Whatever it says on your desk or your business card or your shirt or whatever the job description that you applied for, he says, ultimately because of Jesus, and if you are a follower of Jesus, you have one title that is above every other title over your head. You are slaves to Christ. In other words, you need to think about who you're working for like that. Which has two major implications. Look what he says here. If you're slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And before this, he says, obey your masters out of reverence with respect and fear and sincerity of heart. What this means is if your title is slave of Christ, and if Jesus is actually your master, that's not only going to change how you treat you're the person you work for. It's going to change how you do the work you do. And first of all, he says, serve your masters out of respect and reverence and fear. And think about the word fear as a not in like, I'm afraid of you, but a sense of awe. That you're actually meant to treat them with a kind of respect and a reverence and a dignity, just like you would for Christ. And he says, you're going to do the work to win their favor, not only when their eye is on you, but when they're not looking. So you're not cutting corners, you're not mailing it in, you're not doing all this other stuff. It actually changes because you revere them so much, you have so much respect for them, you have so much awe for who your boss is, you so want to please them that you don't cut corners when they're not around. You don't try to just save face and make yourself look good. You actually want to do good work and you actually want to respect and treat them with awe. And I know you're going, yeah, you do not know my boss. You have not met so-and-so. You have not, you have not worked in my, you haven't been on this. You don't understand. And here's the problem that I think this verse is pointing out. If your ability to show your boss or your master respect depends on whether they're respect worthy, you're going to go like this. Sometimes you might have someone who's a really respectful person and it's easy to show them respect. Someone who's a really hard worker and so it's easy, it's easy to work hard for them. Someone who treats you so well so it's easy to be in awe of them. But sometimes that changes and mostly they're not always like that and not everybody's like that or you change jobs or you change people. And therefore, he says, if your reverence or hard work and your ethic and the way you treat your boss is dependent on how they treat you, that's no good. He said, they cannot be the source 
of your reverence. They're the object of your reverence and awe and fear and respect. They're the object of your hard work. They're the ones you're serving, but they cannot be the source of it because they may not always deserve respect. They may not always deserve hard work. They may not always treat you in a way that makes you want to work really hard. He says, Jesus has to be your source. Jesus has to be the one because of his love for you, because of how he has treated you, because he used his power in your service, because he took his authority and laid it down for you, because he took his very life and gave it up for you. That is the motivation and the fuel to treat your earthly masters like that. Not because your earthly masters always deserve it, but because Jesus, your true master, you as a slave of Christ, have someone who has done everything for you. He has modeled to you perfectly what the perfect leader is. Someone who is humble, compassionate, kind, strong, wise, generous. He says, because that's who your boss is in heaven, so to speak, you can now treat your earthly masters differently. Christ becomes the source and the fuel for us, whoever we are working for. We have this endless fuel and supply of, that makes us want to be reverent and to be in awe of the person we work for and to treat them with dignity and to never want to cheat them or cut corners and to never say, oh, I work for the man or I work for that company or I just work in this environment. And it's, it's just like, no, out of reverence for Jesus. Oh, Jesus, because of who you are, I love you. This is what I'm going to do at work. He says, that's... If you're a slave, you are first and foremost a slave to Christ. That's your title. Then he goes on and actually talks to masters, people who are actually in charge. Now, you need to think about this. Actually, in the audience that he was talking to, you would have had people who were slaves, who they worked for someone else. You would have people who were masters, who had responsibility over other people. And then you'd have people who were slaves and masters. They'd be the modern day middle managers, you know, because in, in big households, some households, you'd have slaves who oversaw other slaves. And so they not only reported to the master of the household, the other slaves reported to them. And so there's all, you got people in the room who are actually both slaves and masters. And look what he says to masters. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. What way? Submitting to them, right? Out of reverence for Christ. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism within him. It's not just the slaves who he says, hey, you got a new title, slave of Christ. Masters, you got a new title too, slave of Christ. He says, you may be a master, but you, you have a master. Your master is in heaven. His name is Jesus. And so here's what this means, to blow apart your paradigm. And by the way, he says, that master, there's no favoritism within him. In other words, he doesn't look at you in your killer power suit or your power tie or your fancy hair or a nice car or a nice title and think, wow, that guy's, that girl's really more important. That guy's like, yo, he's, and this person, uh, he says, we see the world that way. And he says, you may see yourself that way, you know? Look at what I've accomplished. Look at me. There's very few women in this company who have gotten to this status. Look at me. There's very few guys in this company who have done this. There's very few people this young who look at what I've accomplished. And what may be impressive to you and all the people around you and people treat you and your grandmother tells all their friends about you because of what you've accomplished. Paul says, hey, you have a master in heaven. He does not care. He sees you the same way as you see everyone else. Friends, this is, I know this is hard actually to hear, but it's actually beautiful, right? 
Because this is the what has tear, torn apart, not only workplaces, but like we said even before, countries, is everybody sees each other as who has power, who has hierarchy, who has title, who's over above it, oh, that person's more important, right? We can't help but do it. When you meet someone for the first time, you say, oh, what do you do? And their answer immediately starts a chain of events in your mind. You think, oh, I better get to know them a bit. Oh, I can't believe that. Oh, they, oh, they must be smart. And maybe you start to feel like, oh, I want to know them more. Or you start to feel more insecure about yourself because you're just changing the value system because the value system is all about the titles and the hierarchy and the power. And Paul says, you know what? Your father in heaven and Jesus, your master, they don't care. They see everyone the same. This word favoritism actually means to, you know, when, in, in Greco-Roman culture, when someone would come in and you would sort of bow down before them and they would lift up your face as a way of showing you honor and they call, like receiving the face. And he says, I know how you guys work in the workplace. You look at some people, you say, oh, this person, very honorable. Oh, that person, not so much. He says, God doesn't do that. He lifts all your faces. He doesn't play favorites. And so he says, if you're a master, in other words, if you're responsible for people, you need to remember two things. One is, they are equal to you. Whatever title they have or don't have, whatever title you have, don't have, whatever education you got, whatever thing you completed to climb your way up, you and they are the same in God's eyes. You are equal. And you need to treat them as equals, as people deserving of grace and mercy. You need to treat them like you would want to be treated. And secondly, he says, you have a master. You are a slave. To Christ. You are accountable to Jesus for how you treat the people you work with. And in fact, if you want to know how you should treat the people you work with, you want to know how to lead as a master, take cues from the master. Because you are a slave of Christ. And how did Christ treat you? He used his power, his authority, his privilege to get below you and lift you up. Right? One of the most amazing things he said to his disciples is, I'm your master and Lord and you're right. But I didn't come here to be served by you. I came to serve you and to give my life up for you. So he says, if you're a master, if you have responsibility for people, not only do you see them as equals, but you learn from me, the master, how to lead people. And this changes the way you treat everyone that you work with. Now, this doesn't mean that you won't have to make difficult decisions as a master. If you're someone who leads people, it doesn't mean you're not going to have to fire somebody. It doesn't mean you're not going to have to have a hard conversation or say a hard no. It doesn't mean you might not have to lay off people. It doesn't mean you might not have to like claw back a benefit or cut you know, what was a perk before. It doesn't mean that you won't have to hold people accountable who aren't working the way they're supposed to work. But what it means is it will change the way you do it. It will not keep you from seeing them as an equal. You will actually talk to them about their performance or about what's going on because you care about them, because you are serving them. You're not going to power up on them just because you're the boss or because you have the title and they work for you, right? It's so easy for those of us that lead people to see people as people who get stuff done for us so we can accomplish our goals. He says, no, that's not how you view them. You are going to change the way because ultimately you first and foremost, your job title is slave of Christ. Now, I know there's a myriad of ways that this could work out, and this, it's probably raising more questions for you than answers. Like, how do I do this? How does this actually um, happen? How does this work? And, and there's never any sort of ideal situation of saying, well, in this situation, always do this. Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, gives an example uh, of, a, of a guy at his church who was, uh, worked for financial services. And... Um, 
he was in a, in a private equity division in that company. And so one of his jobs was he had a team was they were invest, make investments to make returns. And he said, my team brought me um, an investment opportunity that was going to make a killing for them because they all get bonused on, the, on the, you know, the, the returns that they get for me and for my bosses. So here's someone who was a slave and a master. He's got a team he's responsible for, and he's accountable to the company and to the people. And he said, so there was this amazing investment opportunity. We were going to make a lot of money on it. There was competition between other banks. We had to move on it first. So the problem was the business that this investment opportunity was in, he said, they weren't unethical, and our company had no problem investing in them, but I did. He said, I didn't think that they were actually making the world a better place, this company that we were thinking of investing in. He said, I thought they were actually making life worse for people. So he said, I had this problem. I'm accountable, actually, to my bosses to make money. I'm responsible for my team, and they're bringing me stuff, and I can veto the deal. I can kill it, and they can lose money, and another bank will come in. And he says, so I'm torn between something I'm supposed to do, but something I don't feel comfortable doing, and what does it mean? And I know for many of us, we live in those places, whether it's toxic cultures, all this, like, ah, I don't know what to do. And as he prayed about it, here's what he decided. He said, out of responsibility for the people, the team that works for me and the company that I work for, I can't veto this deal. It is a good deal for the company. But secondly, he said, I'm not going to take any bonus money from this particular deal. I don't want any part of it. And he said, it gave him this beautiful opportunity to actually tell people, hey, I want human beings to flourish. I don't think this business does, but I'm not going to veto the deal and I'm not going to share in the profits. And that's just one situation. Again, it's probably going to raise more questions for you. And you think, well, how about this? What about that? And so here's what I want to suggest for you. In light of this, what you need is a daily one-on-one with your boss. And by that, I mean Jesus, right? The answer is always Jesus. (laughs) You need a daily one-on-one with your boss. Friends, you cannot survive in your workplace if you are not regularly going to your master saying, what do I do? Right? Because this isn't something you go around and go, oh, perfect, Jesus, uh, VJ, you fixed all of my work problems. I'm ready to go. No, I'm reading this even this week going, man, how do I do this all the time? Because there's so many different situations, so many different people, so many different decisions to make. And how do I be a good slave? And how do I be a good master? And all of that. You cannot survive without going to the master. You need a daily one-on-one with that boss where you're not only bringing your questions and your complexities and your struggles in your workplace and with your boss or the people who work for you to him, but you are learning daily from him how to be a good leader. You are learning daily from him how to submit because he submitted to his father and he actually submitted to us in ranking down below us to lift us up. He's the one you need the one-on-one with. Don't try to do your day without this. And just as a practical step and a suggestion for you, It's a tool that you can find in the App Store. It's called Reimagining the Examine. It's actually a little app that you can get. And here's uh, one of the examples. Today's Examine, How I Treated Others Today. So you can do this, look for different subjects. And it actually gives you, just leads you through about a 10, 15 minute exercise of asking you questions, getting to you to reflect on your day, either the day that's coming up or the day that was, and bringing Jesus into that, becoming more and more aware of how God is, is with you all the way through this. And so this may be a helpful tool for some of you who don't need that kind of a thing, but some of you just think, okay, Where do I go next? Here's my prayer for you. That Monday or Sunday night or whatever your next shift is or whenever the work week starts for you again, that as you walk into that place and maybe it's the same old desk, same old pile of work that you left when you left before the weekend. It's the same old kind of people you work with. Same old paycheck. But you're coming in a different person. Because you've had a one-on-one with a new boss who's given you a new title. 